Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. I chose this topic because I think it's important to start off a podcast about disasters with a discussion of what the rest of the topics in the podcast will be about. I mean, what even is a disaster? To tell you the truth, I use the term disaster wrong all the time. Like all the time. I use it when I have a bad day. I use it when I think something was poorly planned or executed. Honestly, I use it anytime something goes wrong. Well, I should probably expand my vocabulary because technically none of those things are actual disasters. In the scheme of things, they are just minor annoyances. Okay, now that we've discussed how to use the word incorrectly, what is an actual disaster? Fun fact. The word disaster is a compound word from Old Italian and Middle French words. Dis meaning in opposition to and astro meaning related to the stars. The word relates to the astrological idea that the position of the stars and planets controls the fates. So the word disaster actually means under a bad star. Pretty cool. Astrology aside, the experts refer to a disaster as a serious disruption to the function of a community that exceeds its capacity to cope using its own resources. Now that we have some of the basics out of the way, I would love to introduce you to Dr. James Phillips, my personal mentor, the director of my disaster and operational medicine program, a CNN medical correspondent, the ASEP disaster president-elect, and an all-around big deal in the disaster world. Welcome, Dr. Phillips. Thanks for being my very first guest. Well, thanks for having me on, Dr. Unruh. It's a pleasure, and I'm excited to be part of the inaugural podcast for uh, education and interest of those involved in the nerdy stuff that we love. I feel like my introduction didn't even start to do justice to all the experiences that you've had. Could you talk a little bit about how you got into this field? Yeah, absolutely. I've had a bit of a circuitous path to get to where we are. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be an emergency doctor. I actually decided to do this when I was five years old. I was that wheezy little kid with asthma that was always coming in with exacerbations and getting nebulizer treatments. Mostly, I blame my parents and the education from the primary care docs. If someone may have told my parents at some point in the 80s that having two smokers, a cat, a dog, and shag carpet was a bad idea for an asthma kid, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have ended up here. I wanted to do emergency medicine since I was about five, and once I got to medical school, I did develop an interest in plastic surgery because I wanted to be a burn surgeon. I was working in the Baptist Burn Center back in Oklahoma City and was fascinated by the, the surgical procedures, the debridements, the skin grafting that was done by some of the plastic surgeons there. So I actually pursued that first. And in my fifth year of residency, it come to be that it wasn't the right fit for me. And it was lacking what I was passionate about. It was reflecting in my performance. And so I ultimately did what I had to do and resigned my residency to pursue emergency medicine. And I was very lucky in that outside the match, I was able to pursue a spot at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So I got to move to Chicago and be an ER doctor, just like the guys on the TV show ER. So that was great. And uh, while I was researching uh, emergency medicine programs, I came across this new subspecialty that I'd never heard of called disaster medicine. Had I known that even existed in any form when I was in medical school back in Oklahoma, most certainly I would have checked that box as being what I need to do with my life. Reflecting back on my career, so much of it seems to have been influenced by my father and his experiences, which we can talk about. So that's why a son of a firefighter wanted to be a burn surgeon. 
But ultimately, his career really influenced me and wanted to be involved in disaster response and preparedness in some way. Following my residency, I had reached out to all the existing disaster fellowships I could find on the internet to try to learn about their programs and figure out what it was that they did that was unique. And ultimately, I reached out to Dr. Greg Seatone in Boston, who was at that time running a fellowship called the Harvard Disaster Medicine and Emergency Management Fellowship, and was able to convince him to take me as the first American in the program. So I moved to Boston after Chicago and did my one-year fellowship, happened to move there just weeks before the Boston Marathon bombing. As you know, and maybe the listeners will understand, I have this tendency to be in the wrong place at the wrong time where disasters tend to happen wherever I am in some way. And so the marathon bombing happened and sort of influenced my fellowship and my interests even further into where I focus now. After a few years of being on faculty at Beth Israel Deaconess, one of the Harvard programs, met my wife, and we ultimately chose the opportunity to come to D.C., where I was recruited to come and start a disaster fellowship here at GW, which is where we are today. I'm now in my sixth year here. That's awesome. So I feel like a lot of people understand what internal medicine is and what emergency medicine is. But whenever I tell someone that I'm specializing in disaster medicine, I get a lot of blank stares, even from other doctors. Can you explain what disaster medicine actually is? Yeah, it's difficult. Disaster medicine is like, uh, it's like the definition of terrorism. If you ask 100 people what it means, you'll get 105 definitions. What I think disaster medicine really encompasses is it's the subspecialty of emergency medicine primarily that focuses on response, but mostly preparation and mitigation against mass casualty incidents of any type. Disaster, by definition, overwhelms your existing resources. So it has to be a situation that's of a magnitude that overwhelms what you have on hand at that time. What's interesting about disaster medicine, it's it's not just emergency medicine care in the emergency department. In fact, we're talking about from moment of impact in the field for EMS and first responders, they can be overwhelmed easily with a number of victims or severity of illness that is a disaster for them. But then emergency medicine physicians and, and nurses in the ER have to prepare and mitigate in different ways. And depending on the size and scope of, of the incident, it can become a local, regional, statewide, national, or even international incident. And that's the thing about disasters is they are scalable just as the response to them is scalable. So for me, I look at disaster medicine overall as the Venn diagram of a number of different specialties and foci of study, including public health, epidemiology, emergency medicine, EMS. It goes on and on and on. We have to be experts in each of those little areas to be able to bring all that information and knowledge together to be able to do what we do as disaster medicine specialists, particularly as physicians. Do you know some of the history of disaster medicine? Is it like all from the military? Is that where it got started or did it start before that? It's interesting because it was a pretty organic development as I understand it. And I'm going to be leaning on one of my older colleagues and mentors to pursue writing perhaps a small book on what is the true history of what we today call disaster medicine, because it's not entirely clear. The military has certainly contributed a great deal to what we currently know about disaster medicine. When we talk about mass casualty incidents, there's no situation in the world that causes more than kinetic war. When we're talking about explosions, bullets, particularly through the the 90s with the global war on terror, all of those things were daily mass casualty incidents. And so certainly military doctors and surgeons in the field experienced these overwhelming catastrophes on a, on a frequent basis. 
What's interesting is I think that disaster medicine really sort of manifested itself coming out of two areas domestically, primarily out of EMS. Pre-hospital medicine in particular is uh, what people think of the most when we talk about disaster. When we tell people that we're disaster specialists, the first thing that comes to mind is response. Doctor putting on a backpack and jumping in the back of a Black Hawk to helicopter off to some place where a tornado hit and jump out and provide care on the ground. But that's not reality. Reality really is that your local responders are the first ones there, and that's typically EMS. But then when we looked at the systems of EMS and not just the first responders, but the first receivers, that started to cause hospitals to prepare and think about these things at their level, not just the pre-hospital level. Of my mentors, in particular here in Washington, D.C., particularly in the post-9-11 era, a lot of what we currently think of as disaster medicine today came from people who were primarily focused on urban search and rescue. Folks like Joe Barbera, Anthony McIntyre, Tom Kirsch, these folks that had really started exploring urban search and rescue, pre-hospital medicine and collapsed buildings and various other dangerous situations as a separate area of EMS. And those same folks had most of the really great ideas coming out of 9-11 when we were really experiencing an interest in the area of how to better set ourselves up to respond to such incidents. And then another area where it came from, I suppose, would be uh, military-related. The National Disaster Medical System, the NDMS, which was, which is a government program that's housed within the Department of Health and Human Services in ASPR, which used to be the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, but was recently elevated to a prestigious level within the department and is now the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. They house the NDMS. And... Anybody interested in disaster medicine has probably come across the concept of a DMAT team or a disaster medical assistance team. I'm a member of one of those, as are a number of our colleagues here at GW. And those are teams of intermittent federal employees, doctors, nurses, paramedics, some others, who in time of crisis, if their team happens to be on call, they will rally and deploy for two weeks to various domestic disaster sites. The teams were primarily put together for hurricane response, but we've responded significantly during the COVID pandemic in various new and interesting ways outside of the normal systems that were set up. I think it was a conglomeration of ideas that came from the military, from NDMS, from urban search and rescue, from EMS, and from emergency medicine itself that sort of morphed into this idea that there need to be specialists that can manage all this stuff and really have a deep knowledge and, and really a passion and interest in it in order to further it. And that being said, disaster medicine as a specialty is certainly in its infancy. It may have been people have called themselves disaster medicine physicians for 20 years or so. As a specialty, we are really just getting started. I won't call them baby steps, but the bigger steps towards becoming a certified subspecialty are taking place right now. Let's talk a little bit about disasters. So let's step back a second and tell me what the definition of a disaster is. You talked a little bit about this already, but like if I didn't know anything, what would an actual disaster be? Context matters. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and when I walk into their bedroom and see Paw Patrol toys everywhere, sometimes I believe it's a disaster. That's a phrase that people use. We also take a look at things like the Challenger explosion, and uh, those were things that people look at as being disasters. But when it comes to the science of it, there needs to be a real definition of what defines a disaster. And the way it was taught to me and the way I assess things is that a disaster, no matter what level you're talking about, pre-hospital, one emergency department, multiple hospitals, state, national, international. Um, it, it is a situation where you have enough 
medical injuries and severity of medical injuries and illness that they overwhelm the existing resources that you have on hand, meaning that you're going to have to reach out to others who would not normally be there to help you for assistance. So if your emergency department is overwhelmed because a subway train has derailed, then you're going to need the assistance of other hospitals. And so whenever your individual hospital gets overwhelmed and you require resources of other hospitals, then that would be what we would consider a disaster. Here in Washington, D.C., for example, our primary first responders from a medical standpoint is D.C. Fire and EMS. So in order for them to feel overwhelmed to declare a mass casualty incident, which is a formal declaration for them, it requires nine victims on scene. That seems like a lot. If that were rural Oklahoma, where you have one, maybe two ALS ambulances, it is not going to require 10 victims to constitute a mass casualty incident. However, in an urban area like this, where you can have multiple units responding, some places like New York, Los Angeles, Denver, you're going to have a higher threshold for declaration. And in your emergency department, sure, it might be overwhelming to get six or 10 trauma victims in at one time. That would certainly test any system outside of some very specialized places. Whether or not that would constitute a disaster would probably depend on the time of day, shift, resources, things of that nature. Prime example in Boston, you know, when the marathon bombing occurred, any other time of day that may have really been disastrous, if you will. But one of the things that was to their advantage is the event happened basically during shift change. So there was nearly double the staff of doctors and nurses in the emergency departments and the hospitals in general that would normally have been there. And so there's a lot of factors that go into it. But overall, the primary idea of a disaster is some sort of, when we're talking about it from a medical standpoint, the number of victims and needs of those victims that outweighs the resources that you have immediately available. And as I talk about in some of my lectures, I always like to talk about the history of things, of concepts in disaster medicine and emergency medicine, because just knowing the superficial knowledge is adequate, but knowing the history behind things is so much more fun. The word disaster itself has been around for hundreds of years, and um, I believe it comes from the old Italian, dis astro, which is bad star, which I think is fantastic, because what we know now about science is so much different than what we knew back in the 1600s when we thought that calamitous events occurred because of the the position of the stars and the moon and the planets in the sky. And so if you were unfortunate enough to be around when Vesuvius exploded and Pompeii and these other major disasters, people thought it was because of the positions of the star and because they were under a bad star. And we know that's not the truth now, but I still love the name. That's awesome. I'm going to start saying bad star instead of disaster. Yeah, you know, uh, I always envisioned having a, a disaster consulting company called Bad Star. But then I was like, yeah, that's probably a kind of a negative name. You don't, you don't want to have bad in your title <laughs> when you're trying to provide services to people. Okay, so I just have one point of clarification. Is a disaster the same as a mass casualty incident? No, not necessarily. A mass casualty incident can be a disaster, but not all MCIs are disasters. Like I said, if Washington, D.C. fire EMS had to respond to nine victims, it would be declared a mass casualty incident. But they certainly have enough ambulances and different types of resources that they can deploy quickly to manage the situation. So I think that most probably would be considered that, but it just depends on where it is and the context and the actual resources you have immediately available. Could you have a disaster even if you didn't have a lot of victims? Absolutely. Yeah. You take a look at what can happen. Imagine a rural bar in West Texas that catches fire and has 
25 people inside with smoke inhalation and burns because codes weren't followed or whatever this theoretical example is. And all you have is a small town rural hospital with a maybe a single ER doctor, maybe even a family medicine physician who's running that show. And they've got six beds. I've worked in those ERs during my medical school years. What might be fine in a major city like Boston Uh, They might not be overwhelmed by that. Certainly in our more rural areas where you might have limited transportation, limited additional staff, limited space, certainly that would be considered a disaster for them. What is the path to get to being a disaster physician? Starting from maybe undergrad, how does one get there? To be a disaster physician really requires interest and fellowship training, in my opinion. Fellowship training in disaster medicine is a relatively new thing. I mean, we're talking about maybe 20 years that people have had formal fellowships that have been considered disaster medicine training. The majority of fellowships in emergency medicine right now are non-ACGME accredited, meaning that they are not regulated by a government body that tells you what your curriculum needs to be, what testing might be, and what is required to become officially board certified in that subspecialty. EMS being the primary example of one that is ACGME certified. And so you know people will be fully trained to a particular level when they come out. There are a lot of people out there that consider themselves disaster medicine specialists who did not do fellowship training. And that's completely respectable. Someone had to start all this, right? Someone had to develop these training programs. The majority of people who run disaster medicine training programs themselves are not fellowship trained, but they were the founders of the specialty. And so the same was the case with EMS whenever it became a subspecialty. The majority of people that do emergency medicine fellowships in America are emergency medicine physicians. So you start an undergrad, you work your butt off to get accepted into medical school. From medical school, most students will decide on their specialty during their third year or their fourth year. Emergency medicine has been a very popular specialty lately. The pandemic may be changing that a little bit based on numbers this year. But if you're someone who matched into an emergency medicine residency, you would go and do that training first. And for those students out there, there are programs that are both three years and four years in length for emergency medicine training. The fellowship for disaster medicine would come after that training. There are approximately 10 to 12 active disaster medicine fellowship programs in the country right now. Many are one year in length. Some are an optional two years in length. Ours specifically is a two-year fellowship. And we encourage our fellows to get a master's degree during that time. I think that as the prominence of our training programs continues to grow, it will start becoming really a requirement for people that want to consider themselves disaster specialists to have done disaster medicine training. You can't become an EMS or certified doctor anymore without having done a fellowship that makes you eligible for that. And soon enough, I don't know if it'll be next year or 10 years from now when disaster medicine becomes a board certified specialty, it will require specialty training in order to be able to consider yourself that. The pathways are not super set in stone at this point, but as far as I'm concerned, if you want to consider yourself a disaster medicine specialist, you need to dedicate specific time to disaster medicine. Very specifically, not just EMS, not just urban search and rescue, but specifically a disaster medicine fellowship. But of course, I'm biased because I run one and I did one. Okay, so say a disaster strikes now. Can you tell me a little bit about what the basic steps of a disaster response are? It depends on at what level. Let's take an example of how things would work if here in Washington, D.C., some bad actor decided to take a, um, a moving truck and drive it down Constitution Avenue in the middle of the summer and run over 
50 people with 20 dead on the scene. Now you've got 30 living victims who have just been intentionally crushed by a vehicle. Go, right? That's boom. Everything starts prior to that, what we call left of boom on this timeline. One would hope that the number of victims has been mitigated, has been lessened by security, things that have been put in place, bollards on streets, things that make driving a truck like that inaccessible to the sidewalks. And then the other mitigating factors that we would hope would be in place, and we know are here in Washington, D.C., is citywide planning for such an event. The first thing that's going to happen after EMS arrives on scene and starts triaging victims based on their injuries is to figure out where to send them. And we have systems in place to help assist EMS in determining which hospital is the most appropriate place for those individual patients to go. Taking a step back and looking at triage, which is really that first core concept of disaster medicine response. When it comes to triage, there's a number of different systems that have been designed, and this certainly has a tremendous amount of military origin and influence that are designed to help responders separate victims into categories to determine with your limited resources, who is the most important to treat first. And triage is a French word that means to separate into three or to separate into groups. And the idea, this is, you know, over a hundred and so years old, is the idea of being able to take victims based on their injuries and how they look to determine if they need to be the first to go to the hospital, if they need to wait a little while, if they can wait a little while before going to the hospital, or perhaps they don't need to go at all in the immediate time period. And most people that are at least slightly familiar with triage understand that we use a color coding usually for these categories. And so let's say the first EMS ambulance arrives on scene to this spaced out area where there's 30 living victims and 20 dead. The first thing they're going to do is to go through the first person on scene by definition should be the triage officer. And their job first is to communicate to their dispatch that we have a mass casualty incident and we are going to need dozens of ambulances, alert all the hospitals, let them know we have some serious issues happening. The other concept with EMS is obviously scene safety being first. So remember, this is a criminal act that the police are going to have to manage. And once it's been deemed safe that EMS can get into the area, they're going to arrive and start triaging those victims to know who goes first. And there's been a number of different triage systems throughout the years, jumpstart for pediatrics. But the primary one that we use right now, particularly here in Washington, D.C., and most major metropolitan areas, is SALT triage, which is sort, assess, provide life-saving treatment. And what that does is that allows the EMS or whoever is your triage officer on scene to be able to quickly look at a victim and assess their, to a degree, their vital signs, their mental status, the degree of their injuries, and decide, is this a red patient that needs to go immediately to the hospital because they need immediate surgery and support to survive? Is this someone with lesser injuries that would be considered a yellow patient that needs to get to the hospital, needs treatment, might need surgery, but they're stable and might be able to wait an hour or a few hours in a worst case scenario? The third category that we think of are the green patients, or what we colloquially call the walking wounded, those patients with minor injuries. And by minor, I mean, yeah, you might have a broken leg, but it's not, a, it's not an open femur fracture that's spurting blood that requires tourniquets and immediate surgery. And so EMS is trained to be able to triage those folks. The 
Different triage systems have different categories, but the other category is, is the color black, which is applied to patients who are uh, deceased on scene, and we don't transport deceased patients. The more difficult one involved in certain systems is the color gray, which means that there's imminent death expected even with the best of care. Those are calls that would be very difficult to make in the field. And fortunately, there's not been many incidents in America recently that have required such decision-making in the field, but that would be the additional category there. The primary job is to get all those patients that are red to trauma hospitals as quickly as possible. So that takes us to the next big systems level thing, right? You've got now 10 ambulances that are responding. You've got your dispatchers and your emergency operations center that are helping the transporting teams know what hospital they should go to in an effort to not overwhelm any one trauma center. Now, if you're in a rural environment or a less well-resourced environment, you might only have one trauma center. And so then some non-trauma centers might have to take some of these patients that would not normally come their way. Here in Washington, D.C., let's say we have those 30 victims from this tarmac attack, this targeted automobile ramming mass casualty attack, and they need to be distributed to the hospitals that can take them in a way that doesn't reduce their level of care. And so these, uh, the system would be in place so that each emergency department and trauma center would be able to immediately notify them of how many patients they can take, what their current resources are, because let's be honest, every emergency department in the country right now is operating at near capacity. There is not room for a large number of victims to come into any emergency department right now. We don't have the nurses. We barely have the space. Things are difficult in American medicine right now. However, that's why we have these systems, is so that we try not to overwhelm one emergency department with 10 surgical victims and send only bumps and bruises to the other hospitals. So that distribution system should work. It's reevaluated every year in most places. The Washington, D.C. has a mass casualty plan. We have a mass burn plan. We have all these things in place. And all of that is decided by people who have dedicated their lives to learning about disasters, learning about the systems and the engineering that takes place to make those systems work. And physicians certainly are involved at those levels. And then you start receiving patients. And that's the challenge and that's the thick of emergency medicine is being what we call first receivers. Anybody in emergency medicine knows that the first report you get on anything is usually not entirely accurate. And triage in the field under those circumstances can be very difficult. Unacceptable number of patients with our current triage systems are either over-triaged or under-triaged, meaning their injuries are either less than they appear or are worse than they appear when they're initially triaged. So we develop systems to lessen that. And then when those patients do arrive, let's say the red comes in, they're reassessed on arrival to the emergency department. If we have a mass casualty incident coming, we're going to establish somebody as a triage officer to re-triage those patients once they arrive by EMS. And that doctor who is the triage officer, and I always recommend that it is a doctor, they should be able to assess those patients quickly to determine if that red really is a red, if that yellow really is a yellow, or the green is a green and be able to distribute them throughout the department appropriately, knowing who might need immediate surgery or who can wait. That way we don't spend all your resources on the patients who are the least sick. The important concept here is understanding that a mass casualty incident, let's say GW is gonna get 10 of those victims. This is not just an emergency department issue. This is a whole of hospital response. We would activate what are already pre-existing emergency operations plans. We would open up our red binder that's our disaster binder on every floor in the hospital that's been coordinated, written, and tested by our hospital emergency managers so that everybody knows their role in those first 30 minutes. 
so that the administrators can come in and run as an administration so that the doctors are not trying to do that job while trying to provide care. Deciding if additional staff need to be called in or do we have the resources already existing to, to manage the number of patients we've got. Providing what we call reverse triage. Let's say we need more space, we need more beds. What patients can we discharge from the emergency room and from the hospital as quickly as possible to make room for that surge of patients? That's a whole other podcast lecture on surge capacity. And then ultimately providing treatment to those patients all the way until they discharge from the hospital. As long as that answer was, it's a brief answer as to how an emergency department in general would manage a small-scale disaster here in Washington, D.C. You are essentially saying that the actual response starts even before the disaster, and that's in the form of preparedness and mitigation, correct? Exactly right. So many of us come into this field because we've been inspired by a disaster response. My generation of disaster folks, we were mostly inspired by the response to Haiti and the earthquake that happened down there. And a number of my colleagues here at GW responded down there and provided urban search and rescue care and and disaster care down there. That was just before my time in training, so I, I wasn't a responder to that. But many of us think that that's the primary thing that disaster specialists do, and the reality is it's not. The majority of us might go through our entire career without ever responding in the field to a disaster. The majority of what we do is planning, preparedness, training, and research. Because every dollar you put in before the incident occurs is worth $10 on the other side of the incident. If you can put into place measures that both reduce the likelihood of a disaster, whether that's a natural disaster, levees breaking during a hurricane we saw after Katrina, building codes, earthquake proofing, fireproofing, all of those things are disaster prevention and disaster mitigation. So that should something untoward happen, the number of victims and the severity of their injuries is lessened. That is the primary place to intervene. Preparation is the key, but you have to be a specialist to understand what preparedness means. And that is not just training and having regular meetings. It's understanding that the stuff is expensive. In order to figure out where your money goes most efficiently to do the best good, you need to know where to put it. There's a whole science of analyzing the hazards that your place is vulnerable to so that you can apply those dollars with your limited budget every year in an attempt to make any disaster that occurs, less. But it's not just natural disasters. We're also talking about living in a time of terrorism and intentional violence that's unseen since maybe the 60s. And certainly international terrorism, that's a constant concern for us. And the rise of right-wing violence in America is very concerning to me. I think that we're in store over the next few years for mass casualty incidents that we haven't seen for a while. As far as preparation for that, that's what we do. We, We think about the worst things that can happen and how can we make our emergency departments best prepared for that. The concept of an all hazards approach to mass casualty incident preparedness is adopted by most systems in the United States. We would love to be able to sit down and have a budget and training for every type of disaster possible, from chemical weapons, a nerve agents attack, a biological weapon attack, vehicle rammings, mass shootings, earthquakes, crush, you name it. We would love to have an individual plan for each one of those things with specialized equipment and training, but that's not how it works. That's not how money is allocated these days. When you have such a low risk of one of those things actually occurring, despite how consequential they can be, putting money into that when it could be used elsewhere is a problem we face. The concept of an all-hazards approach where you have your emergency department, your hospital, community prepare for any type of hazard 
is the the general approach where you think through maybe not to the granular detail of the exact cause of the injuries or the type of chemical or biological agent or the cause of the trauma, but just how to best respond to trauma in general or burns in general or chemical and biological weapons in general. And hope along the way that whenever you determine what the, the nuances are, that you can respond to that in a more ad hoc way. So you had mentioned research. How do you do research on something that's so unpredictable, like a disaster? How is research even done in this field? I think it's the biggest challenge of our specialty. When we think about traditional scientific research in medicine, we're talking about double-blinded, randomized control trials where you're using this new medication and giving the other half of the patients a placebo, and then you follow that for a period of time to determine what type of side effects and dangers might exist and whether something is efficacious and safe. You end up with math and percentages and p-values and things of that nature. That just doesn't happen in disaster medicine. There's no way to do randomized control trials on an earthquake or a mass shooting. So much of what we do is what will be considered low-level evidence because so much of it is based on the response and analyzing what happened when an incident did occur. If the ideal situation, if one existed, would be to have some type of mass casualty incident, we learn from it, what we call lessons learned, and then we apply funding and training to prevent the severity the same severity should that occur again, and then have the same event occur again. And then we can measure and see if anything changed. Did we make a difference with our mitigation and training efforts? But that doesn't exist. So it is one of the more difficult things we deal with in in disaster medicine. But it's also why an all-hazards approach works, because we have that limited amount of money and resources, and so we just have to prepare in general for what happens. But common sense can tell us that the majority of these interventions are helpful, right? Having appropriate amount of space and resources and well-trained staff in the setting of a mass casualty incident is a no-brainer that that is helpful. Just as in having a the ability to create vaccines quickly in the setting of a new pandemic, that's a no-brainer that that's important. One of the areas where we are able to do research is sort of in the areas of training to know how well the different types of training we perform for nurses, technicians, EMS, and for physicians. What's our retention? How useful is that whenever something occurs? Those things are to a degree measurable, but it certainly is a lacking area in emergency medicine or in disaster medicine in particular because we don't have the ability to recreate these events. I think that what we'll find in time is that virtual reality and augmented reality will allow us to research ourselves in these areas better. When we start having scenarios that we can build inside of a computer, put on some goggles, and then test our decision-making and our response individually, and then repeat that over and over again until we get better at it, that's going to be the future. So I think that the future of improving disaster response at all levels will be virtual reality and artificial intelligence. So I think that this conversation, gosh, maybe even just 10 years from now is going to be completely different. That was perfect because my next question was where are we going with disaster medicine? So I think you actually already answered that. But if there's anything else that you thought about next steps for disaster medicine and what would improve it and what's going to happen in the future. Do you have anything else? I do. I think that the first step for us as a specialty is 
recognition and board certification. And there's a number of doctors that I work with around the country who have taken the lead on developing a standardized curriculum. I credit the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine for taking the lead on accrediting fellowships to a degree by looking at our training, looking at our curricula, and determining if we are an approved fellowship based on their standard. And we are one of those here at George Washington proudly. In addition to that, there'll be probably a multi-year process until we find ourselves with a specialty board where people finish a fellowship, then take a test and become board certified. I think that following the pandemic, the value of disaster-trained physicians has become much more obvious. And I think that as we take on more prominent roles within the federal government, there have been disaster-trained doctors at, at all levels of the government, which have been very interesting, sitting on the National Security Council, working at Health and Human Services, Homeland Security. I think that as we continue and, and hopefully have more opportunities at those levels, the value of disaster-trained physicians will continue to be recognized. And eventually, it's my belief that positions will be created within hospitals in which a disaster medicine-trained physician will be required. I think that should already be the case. In addition to every hospital having some degree of an emergency manager who focuses their time and efforts on preparedness and response, I think that from a clinical standpoint, there should be a disaster-trained physician who's also augmenting that, if not leading that. I think that once board certification happens, that the specialty will take on a much more prominent role nationally. I think that uh, in terms of response to disasters, because we talked about training with virtual reality, but in terms of response, so much of it depends on politics, and that makes it difficult, right? Are we going to get the funding that we think is necessary to continue the efforts that were started during the early parts of the pandemic response to fund the government agencies like HHS and Homeland Security, the intelligence agencies, to fund them, to employ physicians who are trained in this? Because you don't even know what you don't know until you start brainstorming with folks that do this for a living. I think that the American public recognizes the importance of disaster preparedness. We aren't out of this pandemic yet. Hopefully it is tapering down and finding a steady state, but we need to continue to fund disaster medicine efforts and primarily those at the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response and our disaster teams before the typical short memory kicks in. You know, following 9-11, there was a tremendous amount of funding that helped to push the specialty forward and has trailed off in subsequent administrations. And so hopefully continue to elect people that recognize the importance of preparedness. And certainly our current administration recognizes the importance of, in particular, biodefense and biological preparedness. This is not the last pandemic we're gonna see in the next 10 years. I think that if we continue to provide funding for those efforts, we're gonna have better outcomes, but it's hard to prove that to people without data. Right, And that's where the research is difficult. But I think that we're in a much better position now than we were eight years ago with the focus that the leadership and our different federal agencies have on disaster preparedness. We covered where disaster medicine came from, what it is and the basics of it, and kind of where it's going. So I wanted to just end by hearing what your best disaster story is. I can take it to my most recent deployment, which was down to Alabama during the COVID response. That was a particularly challenging deployment. Even though this is my specialty, not all disaster physicians have an opportunity to deploy acutely to a disaster. Right after my training, a team of us went over to Nepal following the earthquake. I've deployed to Ukraine prior to this part of the war. 
to uh, Nyepopetrovsk, now called uh, Nepro, to do an assessment of their mass casualty capabilities in that city. Most recently, as a medical officer and as the chief medical officer for our team, deployed down to coastal Alabama to augment a hospital that had become so overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients that they weren't able to function anymore and they required federal help. It was a particular challenge. I'm speaking as a not as a representative of HHS when I tell this story. We got down there and the, the challenges of COVID response were numerous because the disaster teams were really created with the strategy of responding to earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, things of that nature, not augmenting a long-term ongoing pandemic response. Additional challenges aside from that were the challenges on the ground insofar as we came down and essentially help to augment the care within an emergency department. The needs of the hospital were certainly beyond the capabilities of of a single federal team, but our teams were spread out all over the country, exhausted for additional responses. We stepped into an emergency department where 75% of the patients that we were seeing were coming in with severe COVID. Almost every patient in the emergency department was intubated. 75% of the inpatients in the hospital at that time were COVID positive. Yet still, the challenges were also from a personnel standpoint, because even with that overwhelming amount of illness in the hospital, there were still medical staff from that hospital walking around without masks on, refusing to wear N95s while doing intubations in rooms. And it was maddening to me. We actually had some safety issues and safety concerns with our team that we actually temporarily put our response on hold until we could convince the staff at the hospital to abide by the most minimal of infection prevention rules so that we could feel safe bringing our team back in there. That was a particular challenge. It was made even uglier, in my personal opinion, because during the time that we were deployed down there as a federal team, The former administration chose that time to come down to the same state and have an open-air rally with tens of thousands of people. It just didn't make sense. And so it was demoralizing from that standpoint, challenging from a medical standpoint, completely frustrating from a common sense standpoint. But we went down there and we did our job as we were supposed to and helped a lot of people. It's certainly not something that I would want to do again because of those challenges. Hopefully we don't get to that point. But it opened my eyes up to the complexities that a disaster response is far more than just the medical care. Thank you, Dr. Phillips, for sharing your expertise with us. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. <laughs>